Hello and welcome to GovCast. My name is Amanda Ziedit, your host and reporter with Government CAO Media. So today I'm joined by Megan Metzger. She's the founder and CEO of tech accelerator Decode. For those unfamiliar, Decode is this awesome organization that breaks down the barriers between tech companies and government agencies so that emerging technology can revenue faster and government can benefit from them. Thank you so much for joining us today, Megan. Thank you for having me. Before we get into Decode, I want to talk about you for a bit. Where did you get your start in all of this? It's a long winding journey, but one that's interesting nonetheless, I suppose. I studied marketing and engineering when I was in school at GW and quickly realized that both of those things were very necessary no matter what field you're going into in life. And I started out trying out my marketing hat for technology firms and I worked for a very, very small company. We were five people when I was there. So I got the flavor of a startup. What goes into that? And, you know, one day you're plotting world domination. The next day you're ordering the paper clips. And that's the life of a startup. But I left there because I wanted to get back into the engineering side of things. And I joined a very large firm, a systems integrator here in the D.C. area. And I was working on building software. So we were building tools for Army and Army Reserve financial management solutions. And so, you know, had a nice run doing systems engineering and really supporting the technical side. And I think looking back, that's really where I first had the seed planted for what would become Decode eventually, because we were winning very large contracts and life was great, but we were maintaining very antiquated systems and that's what they wanted. So we gave them exactly what they wanted. They just didn't realize that they were spending a lot of money that could go you know, to something else. Ultimately, I realized I'm not cut out for a big business, so I went and joined a couple other people, and we started a business. So we started P3 Partners, and we were geared specifically towards government, and we were doing services around all things IT, so program management. One of the most interesting parts was actually acquisition support. So most people listening to this will probably go, you love acquisitions. That's a very strange thing to love, but we were helping our customers actually procure the multi-billion dollar IT systems. And I got to see just the inner workings of how broken procurement was and how we were running and what companies we could look at or select and how some were thrown out because the font size was wrong, but maybe they were the best company for the job. So it was a really interesting ride. We went from the five of us to over 80 in about a year and a half and just kept on growing from there. And I was the chief strategy officer. So you know, when you're a business growing of that size, one day you're the program manager. So I, you know, had the opportunity to manage a $60 million IDIQ and I would renegotiate benefits. And then I think one day the CEO said, today you're the facility security officer. So I had to learn that. And you just kind of take whatever comes your way. And that's really where I got my first taste of just how hard and how intricate the government market is. You know, from there, I wanted to get back into the product side of things. So joined another firm as the chief operating officer. And we were bringing really awesome tech in from the different tech hubs, working primarily on mobile and cloud technologies. And that's where I think the idea for Decode solidified because what I found was even when we had amazing tech and we had money and contracts to give them, some companies would say, no, thank you. I don't want to work with the government. And then some would say, yes, I definitely want to work with the government, but we had to stand up our own classes just to make sure they succeeded. So that's where the idea came from. But I would say it really just came down to willing to roll up my sleeves and try anything that came my direction that kind of led me to where we are. 
how does that experience and education in both marketing and engineering play such an important role in what you do? And do you think having knowledge and two almost opposing fields of one industry benefit anyone in any field? You know, I think that was the best accident I ever made. So I started on engineering, and then as you do in college, you get confused on what you want to be when you grow up. And so I switched majors several times and ended up with a dual degree. And it wasn't by design, but it turned out to be the best thing that happened to me because you can't be an engineer without understanding the business. And if you want to run a business with engineers involved, you need to see the other side of the hat. And even when you look at concepts and things you put out, if you're an engineer and you're working on the best product you have, if you don't know how to market it, then it's not going to be sticky. And, you know, on the converse of that, you need to be able, if you're on the business side, you need to be able to talk to the engineering teams and get them excited about what you need them to build and know how to collaborate. And those two teams often don't know how to talk to each other. I think there's actually whole jobs. That first job I had at the Systems Integrate was primarily to decode each other <laughs> on the other side of the fence. And it turns out that just holds true. You know, as we're doing our accelerator, which I know we'll talk about, marketing is really critical when you want people to understand what it is your really awesome tech does. So of all the tech challenges in government that you've seen since probably your first job, why procurement? Well, <laughs> great question. <laughs> Honestly, that's one of the biggest barriers that we see. The government can meet with tech. The tech can meet with government. They can love each other, and they know that they're going to have a dramatic impact on the mission. And then they get to procurement, and it just dies. The procurement system, I just find it fascinating because it's well-intentioned, and it's there for a really good reason. And I think there's ways to work with it and be creative to use it in a way that can actually help the government facilitate innovation. When I look at procurement, for me, it's actually a bigger picture. It's not just the paper that gets passed and the proposals that get written. There's a lot that goes into the big A, you know, how it affects the budgets. But there's also just a lot of the culture, things that have kind of been passed down generationally, where, you know, a lot of folks now think that there's things that are in the FAR that prohibit them from talking to a tech company, for example, but maybe have been slightly misinterpreted over the years. So I find it interesting because it can actually be a great tool for innovation instead of a blocker if you know how to leverage it. Would you say the pace of acquisition reform and then the pace of technology have been evolving completely differently since you've been in the field? Absolutely. Yeah. I joke that you can get a meeting in the government just as fast as you can put on a new iteration of software. You know, they're putting out new releases of their technology every three weeks. Mm -hmm. So the pace of technology is just astronomically fast. Even in the last three years since I started Decode, technologies that we worked with in the very beginning are completely different products and animals now. Artificial intelligence and all of those buzzwords, you know, they're becoming reality. So I will say the last three years, the acquisition reform has definitely picked up and there's such a hunger for, you know, innovation and new tech. And so we're seeing that. But it's a bureaucracy. It's really hard to steer that barge in a new direction as fast as technology is changing. Why do you think acquisition reform does take longer? Is it the policies in place or is it the people? You know, policy is hard to change quickly mm -hmm. just across the board. And if you look at why it exists, it's there to protect the government and make sure that we're being good stewards of taxpayer dollars, right? At the end of the day, that's what we have to do. But if you look at the culture, what's there because of that is you don't want to be the procurement officer or the contracting officer that lets the contract that gets protested and you end up in the Washington Post. I don't think anyone sets out to have that goal. 
And so it just creates a risk-adverse nature and culture across the government. And that's really hard to influence and change. And unfortunately, sometimes you get the folks willing to step out and try something new, and sometimes it backfires, and then we kind of take a step back. So I think we're moving at a pace of two steps forward, one step back along the way. But I will say the number of you know, just stakeholders and leaders that I meet in the government, I'm really encouraged about the hunger for it. It's changing. Mm-hmm. It definitely is changing. So as an entrepreneur, what kinds of challenges have you faced starting out of college and then now starting your own tech accelerator? There must have been some barriers along the way in between there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to say the least. You know, entrepreneurship, I always say it sounds really sexy. It does. You will never work that hard in your life. (laughs) There's no off. Mm. Weekends, you're still thinking about it because you put your whole family out there. You know, am I going to eat tomorrow? That's up to me. So on one hand, it's great because my dad told me once before I started Decode that if you're betting on yourself, that's the best bet you can make. Mm. I'm like, great. But also, if this goes south, that's my fault. So, (laughs) you know, so looking back on the companies that I was with before I started Decode, you know, I think a big part of it was being willing to be uncomfortable and stepping outside your comfort zone to try new things. I give the first uh, CEO for that small business that I worked with a lot of credit. He would come in and drop some things on my desk. And I was like, I don't know what this is. He goes, you know what to do. And he would walk off. And I didn't, but you had to figure it out. And that's kind of how small businesses operate is you just figure it out. Mm -hmm. And you have to roll up your sleeves and be willing to do things that you might not have thought that you would find yourself in. And along the way, kind of seeing what works, what doesn't work, is what inspired me to jump out and try it on my own and say, let's see, I think I know what to do. Let's see if we could try it. You know, starting business is hard. I remember laying on the floor in front of my fireplace at the very beginning days of Deco, just deep breathing. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. And it all worked out, obviously. But there were definitely those moments. So when did you start Decode? So I started Decode about three years ago and really started with kind of a crazy idea and saw a gap in the market and kind of eating our own dog food, decided to test it. So the first thing that we did as Decode is I actually sent an email to 500 VCs, venture capitalists. I didn't even talk to the government. And I said, we aren't raising money. This is what we do. Our whole goal is to de-risk the government for technologies so that they will find this market attractive and actually go there and start influencing government. And we had, I want to say close to a 40% response rate, which if anyone's ever done cold email marketing, that's crazy. And only one person said, you know, go away. Um, The others said- (laughs) At least they responded and said, go away. Yeah, you're like, yeah, thanks, I think. Um, But the others overwhelmingly said, hey, if you are telling me there's an easier way for me to tell my portfolio how to do business there, I'm all ears. Mm -hmm. And that's what really gave me that, okay, we definitely struck a chord here. This is way too hard. Traditionally, venture capitalists and why we started there, they were some of the biggest folks that we were finding were telling their investments, just avoid the government market. Mm -hmm. And that's how we kind of ended up where we are, is a lot of companies would say, I'm not going to go there. It's too difficult. It takes too long. Mm -hmm. So all these other industries were getting disrupted and were innovating much more quickly. So they took it well. But what about the other side? How did government respond when you started reaching out to them? That's what shocked me the most, to be honest. I thought I was going to have to kind of do a Trojan horse scenario and infiltrate with tech. And it wasn't long after we started, I actually received a couple of cold calls from the government saying, I need to get involved and I need to understand how to get access and understand the tech. And since then, it continues to surprise me. Over the last three years, 
just the number of government stakeholders that want to be involved in what we do, it's just really phenomenal. And I think we recently did a tally. We have about 78 different agencies that get involved in the decode wow. program now. And the good part there is I also don't get a lot of rejection. <laughs> say, you know, hey, we're trying to help facilitate connections, help the government understand how to get to tech that's forward leading and de-risked because they mm-hmm. now they know that the tech we work with knows government. And we want to bring those sides together. And rarely do you find someone says, why would you do that? Is that a surprising statistic considering the evolution of culture and government when it comes to technology from where you started till now? Was that something you weren't expecting? It was a little shocking. I didn't realize there would be such an appetite. I knew that there was a need for change. I was fortunate to work with the pockets of government that saw it you know, some of the earlier folks that were trying to be a little bit more cavalier and adopt some of the emerging tech before Decode, it was really focused on mobile and mobile technologies. Mm-hmm. And this was when BlackBerry was huge across the government. But I think generally people want to do their jobs and they want to do them well. And no one says, I want to use legacy technology. It's just that's what we're, you know, kind of the world that we're having to work in because of the procurement and all that. So I think now that um, there has been this huge wave, just realization that what's coming out in the private sector is changing so much faster that the government's no longer the owner of that innovation in a lot of areas. So huge uptick. I also wanted to ask for those unfamiliar with how the process works. How do you connect these tech companies and startups to government agencies? Sure. So we run a three-month program. This year we did five, or we will do five by the end of the year. Mm And we always center our programs around different topics or themes. So this year we did Internet of Things and Mobility. We tackled artificial intelligence and data analytics, cloud and enterprise. We're doing information and cybersecurity now. And then one of my favorites is space, outer space, not office space, but (laughs) actual satellites and things like that. I think this is just a leftover childhood dream. And then for each program, we take in applications. So we will only pick six to 10 technologies at a time. And they come to us from across the world. We've done U.S. companies. So you can imagine Silicon Valley and Austin and Boston. But we've also done the U.K. and Australia and Canada and some other countries as well. And then what we look for is, one, can they impact a government mission? We do a lot around how is their business structured? Can they sustain government sales cycle? I think the biggest indicator for us is actually just why. Why do you want to go into the government? You know, if you don't have this sort of passion about the mission and why to work there, when you hit those procurement barriers, you're going to walk away. So you need to have something to come back to when times get hard. So once they're in the program, it's really three key pillars How do we help them understand all of the nuances? So education will teach everything from FedRAMP, and we'll actually have some of the FedRAMP team come in, who I know Ashley was here before. Mm -hmm. There's over 15 topics that we cover. Procurement, of course, because it's my favorite. (laughs) Obviously, (laughs) But pricing and marketing and what use case, what agencies did you actually look at? Mm -hmm. Government's Fortune 1. You wouldn't go to a Fortune 1 and say, I'm going to sell to the entire thing. How do you look at government, have any idea if you should go to the DOD or the IC or to the VA? So some of that is helping them understand where it's applicable and what they can do with the tech. And then we work really one-on-one. All of them, they get a lot of hands-on support and developing their business strategies and go-to-market plan. So once we've done that, they're barely de-risked. When they meet with government or with industry partners, they know that if you say FedRAMP, They'll know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They speak the same language. But then for each program, we create these really 
intentional collisions. So we usually have about 40 to 45 agencies participate and come in and sit in round tables and meet with the tech and just have art of the possible discussions. And we do the same with the partners. The systems integrator and the incumbent community is just as critical in this whole thing. So our goal is if we can connect the tech with the Deloittes who are looking for the tech to take to their customers, we're also kind of completing the trifecta, Mm -hmm. if you will. What was the first connection like out of Decode? The first government company? Oh, great question. I'm trying to remember which one it actually was. Are you going to throw a party after or have a celebration? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, one of our first early wins was actually with Homeland Security. I mean, it was fantastic. They had an opportunity to really hear about the challenge that the agency was facing. Our network, this company in particular, was able to connect with our network and understand kind of the inner workings and the nuances. We guided them through the proposal process. I think at one point we scrapped the whole thing and started over. So it was really great to see, and it kind of highlighted all the parts and pieces that are critical Mm -hmm. and allowed us to reflect on what we teach and how we teach it to make sure we're hitting all the right things. And then we had a beer. And then you had to Can I say that on a podcast? (laughs) Hey, you have to have fun. We're doing government technology procurement. Procurement. (laughs) You need a drink. (laughs) There are the Deloittes and then there are the startups. So why is it important to bring them to the table and and why do they struggle on their own getting involved with the government? The government's still risk adverse, even though we talked about these amazing pockets. So at the end of the day, someone like Deloitte, they know the problem of the government really well. They understand what the challenges are and where they're trying to get to. And a lot of times they hold the procurement, the acquisition vehicles and the contracting vehicles to get there. So, you know, they're the trusted advisor in a lot of scenarios for the government. There's definitely a shift, I would say, even in the mindset of a lot of these systems integrators to realize that the government's hungry for emerging tech. Now, not everyone has kind of started to shift their mindset, but there's definitely pockets of the systems integrators that have. And the ones that have know that If I can find the tech and bring them in through me, then the government can get to them quickly, too. So they're still critical. I mean, a lot of our companies have done sole source or direct contracting. And I would say from last March to June of this year, our companies won $55 in contracts, which is astronomically fast. It's something I'm very proud of. And I think 80% of it went through partners. And some of that's steered by the program office and some of that's steered by the acquisition shop. Mm-hmm. And they say, this is great. I'm putting it on soup. And so then you have to navigate and help them understand how to find the right soup partners. Mm-hmm. So partners aren't going anywhere. We teach lots of courses on how to work effectively with those partners. And I'm just very hopeful and I continue to hope that more and more systems integrators start to realize this shift. Your business model and how you create revenue is going to shift And the systems integrators that get that and connect with the tech are going to be the ones that stay ahead. So I also think what's really amazing about Decode, especially in D.C., is I've been to a few of the receptions and events and cohorts, and it never feels like a business exchange. It's always very social, interactive, fun. When you're talking to Decode industry partners and government stakeholders, it just sounds like everyone's sharing ideas and not really pitching or or getting down to the business of everything. Was that intentional? Definitely intentional, partly selfishly, because I have to go to work every day and I want to love what I do. (laughs) So I have to walk this very cool intersection of Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. and the government. And, you know, we jokingly say, don't wear your hoodie to the Pentagon, although seriously, don't wear your hoodie to the Pentagon. But we want the government to also realize that there's this whole other culture out there. Mm -hmm. We're humans. We want to connect with other humans. And if we can make that 
you know, a very happy exchange and we can help, you know, both sides connect with each other in a format that doesn't feel rigid and is much more conversational. And you can explore the art of the possible without worrying about, you know, if your tie is in the right line with your belt, then we can have much more meaningful conversations. Mm -hmm. It also just helps people take their walls down. We actually have had a lot of agencies call us and say, can we just come have a meeting in your office? Because we need to get off site. We need to change the way that we're thinking. Mm -hmm. And we need to step outside our cubicle walls to do that. So that's part of it is how do we create real human interactions, make it enjoyable, make it less scary. Artificial intelligence doesn't have to be scary. You know, if you're at a reception talking about artificial intelligence and there's music and we're having fun Mm -hmm. and it actually has real outcomes too, how great would that be? So that's what we try to do. It's great. And I think it's important in D.C., especially because people think everyone just walks around in suits and ties every day. And I think it's awesome. The technology world integrating with a government is, is kind of shifting that culture, you know, with USDS and a little bit more startups popping up in the DMV area. Have you ever encountered a time where you were to Silicon Valley for DC government? (laughs) Well, yes. Or vice versa. Even if I put my suit back on, sometimes (laughs) not everyone in government actually knows what that means or understands that or really what the intention is. So we've hosted some agencies where kind of the sponsor or the stakeholder from the agency that reached out to us and says, can you please hold a roundtable? I want to bring my senior leadership team. They get it and they're excited because they've been to Decode events and they understand kind of the art of what we can do. And then you'll have others show up that this is just a whole new world. And it's kind of like we're not in Kansas anymore. They're not really sure how to take it. I think by the end we round them off and they love the culture. But we've definitely run into some folks that look at you like you've lost your mind. (laughs) But a while ago, I did a a sit down with a gentleman from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And there was something that he said to me that's very in line with your question that just stuck with me for a while, which is, you know, I asked him, what do you wish Silicon Valley startups knew about working with the government? And he said, look, you're smart. I understand it. You've got cool tech, but don't come in here and think that you're better than us. Great. Got it. And then he looked at me and said, I've been shot at. And I stopped and I said, you win. Yes, you win. That's it. So so that stuck with me because, you know, I get to work with great, cool, funky tech all day long. And then I need to go into the Pentagon and I need to realize that all of these people are sacrificing for their country. Mm -hmm. And I need to show the level of respect that they deserve. It definitely puts things in perspective. And as we hear often, lots of our fundamental technologies did start with government funding, at least. So there's a point to that. I want to shift a little bit to other things you're passionate about. I read that you volunteered for GW's Gymnastics Career Advisory Board. You provided coaching for women entrepreneurs. Are these things that outside of procurement <laughs> really you like to focus on? It's something I'm very passionate about for sure. You know, I was given a lot of opportunity when I was in my 20s. I think I was managing that $60 million contract that I mentioned when I was 26 or 27. And it was really just because there was someone that said, yeah, you're smart, you work hard, I'll give you a shot. And along the same time, there was plenty of other people telling me, I actually had someone tell me once, go back to homeroom, you're too young to be here, which that is the best motivation for me. Um, (laughs) So I feel very strongly that women should have these opportunities Mm -hmm. and have that person that believes in them the same way that someone believed in me and gave me those chances to really take off with my career. So I'd like to give back 
I went to GW, so I'm very passionate about getting back to the gymnastics team that I was a part of there. I'm really helping shape the future of these gymnasts because when you're an NCAA athlete, you work really hard and you're not exactly sure how to translate that when you leave. And there's a lot of value there. We would straddle the beam and fall on our face and get back up. And you enter the business world and you need to know how to take that same gusto and apply it. So it's why I'm pretty passionate about it. What kind of lessons did you learn a part of a gymnastics team that you use today? We could do a whole podcast on yeah. this one. Uh, I mean, the big ones are just perseverance. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you know, there wasn't a practice that went by that you didn't land on your face or get mat burn or, mm-hmm. you know, get a rip and you're bleeding on your hand. And you just had to get back up and do it again. Teamwork. You know, even though gymnastics is an individual sport, it's a lot like business. You know, we are all working because we want our bonuses and we want to you know, meet our performance metrics. But if we're not all rowing the same direction, we can't all be successful. And that's really core to gymnastics team. You know, I think also just basic things like time management. When you <laughs> have a full course load in college and you travel every weekend and you practice five hours a day, you kind of just have to get your you-know-what together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, it's funny because we had Jose Arrieta on – as a guest previously with HHS, who also happens to handle acquisition, and he wanted to pursue a career in basketball. So I always find it really interesting when you're right in NCAA sport in college, there's so much time devoted to that. So then you end up in this space, government technology or in general. So it's it's amazing to maybe that's what it is that. athletics and acquisitions. I they think just go was, hand in yeah. <laughs> perseverance. There's a connection there. <laughs> I did want to talk about the space cohort. So that's new. What's behind space? for Decode and connecting those companies with government. Yeah, I'm really excited about space. You know, it's interesting. We actually decided to do our space cohort well before Space Force came into being. Sure. I'm not sure if that helps us (laughs) or not, but there are actually, I can't remember if it's 12 or 14 agencies that spend money on space technology. And being out in the kind of technology landscape, The amount of private investment and venture capital that's going into space has really, really taken off. And so we kind of became intrigued by this idea. You know, NASA shifted some of their launch capabilities to private sector and saved tons of money doing that. I had the opportunity to connect with technologies like Kepler Communications, who has a satellite that's the size of of a loaf of bread. And, you know, that cost a fraction of what it's costing us to build these multi-billion dollar satellites. Mm But space isn't just the satellites and the rockets. There's a lot behind the artificial intelligence and the data analytics that go into that. Lots of cyber security, as you can imagine. Lots of data is coming back down to Earth. So it helps us in a number of missions. It's not just DOD. It's not just NASA, NOAA, the Coast Guard. They're all leveraging satellite communications and space technologies to really do their mission. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be fun. We're going to have a little bit different for us. We're going to do events out in Colorado. We're going to do some in L.A. on El Segundo and some here. So it's going to be a blast. I'm real excited. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And the technologies, I have to tell you, some of the tech that we had the opportunity to meet as part of the application process They make me feel really insecure about my acquisition passion. (laughs) Um, They're literally hurling things into space and like acquisitions. It's great. (laughs) With the space cohort starting, has there been a particular technology or startup that you've been really amazed by that you really want to share? It's hard to pick because they all come from such different areas. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Kepler Communications. They're going to be at our next program. You know, nano satellites that are facilitating communication from really remote locations. That one's pretty fantastic. And they have a satellite up in orbit right now. There's others that are 
focused on the supply chain. So if you look at everything that goes into building a rocket, somewhere in there, there's room for vulnerability and inefficiency. And so there's some really cool tech that's using analytics and different machine learning to kind of track and make that process more efficient. Not as sexy as a satellite, but actually really needed. We came across some really, really fascinating launch capabilities. One of them is actually trying to actively reduce the amount of rocket fuel that's needed to get a rocket up into space, because as you can imagine, it's very expensive, Mm -hmm. and leveraging centrifugal force and Gs to sling things into orbit. We also met some cool tech just kind of looking holistically at our entire application pool doing air traffic control. So using artificial intelligence and object recognition to understand what's flying at your satellite. Really, really cool stuff. Then some great analytics to take all the data that comes back down to ground control and process that so that all of our missions up in space stay safe and are actually giving us the data that we can get out of them. Are any of these companies you're finding to be surprisingly small for the kind of work that they're doing? A lot of space startups, you know, they haven't done massive capital raises. So they've maybe raised $3 million and Mm -hmm. they're a team of 15 to 20 really smart people. And it's just amazing the power of what a small team of people on the same mission can accomplish. And I think those are the ones to watch. They're going to be the ones that come in and disrupt the entire industry. So they're smaller than you might think. They're not all Elon Musk. And $3 million is when you talk about space technologies. It's, it's not much. It's incredible. What's next for Decode? I hear there is some new partnerships with some of your industry partners. Any success there recently? We have a really fantastic set of industry partners. Mm-hmm. And so our corporate program is taking off. And this is really geared towards those systems integrators, I think, that understand that this business is changing and they're really kind of hungry and passionate to bring in emerging tech. So we just recently announced our Deloitte partnership. You know, Amazon and Microsoft are also big partners of ours. And there's several others, kind of like Capgemini folks that are really moving it forward. Mm -hmm. So I think that will continue to increase. And our, our role there is, again, how do we help them adopt to this new world of artificial intelligence? And we're excited that some people share that passion with us and are gonna help out. We also recently launched our government training program, which we're really excited about, with the idea that we can train tech on government all day long. You know, if the government isn't ready to receive it or understand what to do with it, even if they are ready, then we're still going to be fighting an uphill battle. So our training program for government that we recently launched is focused on how do you do technological innovation from what's the right scope of a problem to Should I pick an artificial intelligence solution or what is out there to help me work on these issues? But then we tackle things like how do you leverage the cloud effectively? Mm -hmm. How do you get past the procurement barriers? What do you need to know so your legal guys won't come in and say, no, stop this project? And then how do you scale? So a big thing for us is prototyping is fantastic and it's really hard to get past that prototype or that pilot phase. So we're doing a lot of education around that. We did our first run last May. And we know that eight or nine of the students actually went back and started prototyping tech. So it worked. Really excited about it. Is education somewhere you hope that DECO takes further in five years or so? I really think it's a big area because it's been interesting since we launched that program, just the inbound and the hunger from across government to understand how to adopt technology well and quickly. Mm -hmm. 
it's been kind of surprising. I think there is a big need for it. So I think that will kind of become a big area. And, you know, it really started because someone came to us and asked us, you know, can you do what you do, but in reverse? I think initially someone from the government said to us, I want to sit through all your courses. What do you have to teach technology Mm -hmm. so that they can be successful? I want to know that so I can go back and be better. And that's how it started. Kind of cool. Unexpected but really excited about it. After your career so far and being an entrepreneur and starting Decode, what advice would you give to a woman in this field also trying to start something groundbreaking, innovative, unusual, culture shifting like Decode? The big thing is go for it. Change isn't going to happen in this world unless people step up and try things that they're scared of and are willing to put themselves out there and be uncomfortable and not give up. You know, when you hit that brick wall, keep going. The wall will move. It eventually will move. So be persistent, really reach for what you want to accomplish, and find the great people to come along that share that dream with you. That might even be an adage for government innovation. We have to work together, keep going, and we can move that wall. But that sounds wonderful, and we're really excited to see where Decode goes in the next year. Thank you so much for joining us today, Megan. Thank you for having me. This was fun, and I'll see you at the next Decode event. Yes, of course. This week's episode is supported by Lumina. Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about Lumina, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. It was really wonderful having Megan Metzger of Decode in the studio today. We've had a number of really amazing women in this field interviewed on GovCast, and it's really inspiring to hear Megan comes from a background of entrepreneurship, which many of our other podcast guests have also talked about. Pete Newell came from military and started his own company in Silicon Valley. And him and Megan had the same perspective of entrepreneurship. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable and put pretty much everything on the line, including your families and everything that you have around you. So she also has a history in college of being a part of the NCAA, which it's really funny because... Jose Arrieta from HHS, also with acquisition, when he was in college, he wanted to pursue a career in basketball. So it's fascinating drawing these lines between our guests and where they came from, what they were passionate about before, and how they've somehow ended up in this government technology space. They've both brought some of the things they learned doing sports in college into the profession today. And the way that they've been able to manage that is really, really interesting. Megan now is transforming and innovating government by finding this connection between Silicon Valley and government agencies, which is a unique culture to bring to the DMV. But she's really connecting companies from around the world and around the country with agencies that can really use their capabilities to solve some of their biggest challenges. And if there's one thing that we can take away from this interview today, it's that you don't wear a hoodie to the Pentagon. But seriously, if there's one thing to take away from our interview with Megan today, It's that she found a hole in the government technology process, procurement, and she took that and ran with it and from there built Decode, helping to fill the void and reform acquisition and procurement from the inside by connecting government to the technologies and companies that provide them these solutions. There's plenty more holes to fill, and we really look forward to talking to the folks in and outside of government that plan to fill those holes. Thank you for listening to GovCast. I'm your host, Amanda Ziedet, reporter with Government CIO Media. See you next time. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media. 
It's produced and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. Mm-hmm.